You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. My name is Jonathan. I'm a church planting resident here at Mill Creek. And our passage this morning for our scripture reading is in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that text in the seat back in front of you on page 593. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for the life that we have in Jesus, and that we can sit under the preaching of your word. God, I ask that you would bless us during this time with renewed minds and hearts, to follow you more faithfully, and to know you more. God, it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. In the early 1960s, a stockbroker started working with penny stocks and turned this small little business into a huge brokerage. By the early 90s, this guy's brokerage was doing 10 to 15% of all the trades on the New York Stock Exchange. He'd become a self-made, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial, millionaire, billionaire. He was a philanthropist, and, and he'd really become a somebody, household name, if you're familiar with finances, which is... Why, it's so surprising that he turned, to be a, turned out to be a scam artist. He, he actually had a legitimate business and a legitimate reputation, but then, because he lied and scammed people, it all went up in smoke. You know who we're talking about? Arguably the biggest scam artist in the history of our country, Bernie Madoff. Google tells me that Enron and Charles Ponzi round out the top three. 
Ponzi is the guy that they actually name a Ponzi scheme after. That's what Bernie Madoff did. He would tell people like Kevin Bacon, hey man, I can get you 14% return on your investment. Just give me your money. He would take the money, create fraudulent reports, and then he'd put the money in his own account. And he just did this more and more and more. I learned that the New York Mets actually invested in Madoff. Hard to get an actual number of the scam. FBI evidently says it's 50 billion. Wikipedia tells me it's 65 billion. The Mill Creek elders would be happy for just 1 billion. <laughs> Whatever it is, that's a ton of money. And guys like Ponzi, Enron, Madoff, you hear about these sort of scams, and at least for me, it makes me think I want to go check my investments real quick because. I don't want anybody taking me to the cleaners. And I want to I make sound investments. I don't want to end up like Kevin Bacon with nothing to show for it, right? Don't want to learn the hard way. Seems to me that there's plenty of people who actually, who actually wonder if the church isn't a lot like a Ponzi scheme. Hey, you churches like Mill Creek, pastors like... You, Jeremy, organizations, not-for-profit institutions, denominations. Is this whole thing just a Ponzi scheme? The only difference is we promise the, we promise the rewards in eternity. How convenient. You'll, oh, you'll see after you're dead, we were right. Just keep giving us your checks in the offering plate. High school students college students, maybe you grew up at Mill Creek or a church like Mill Creek, maybe you're asking the question, how do I know? Like, where's the proof? How would we know? How would we decide if this thing isn't just a big fraud? Well, this morning we come to a passage in our text where Luke actually wants to address this very question, is Jesus the real deal? Is Jesus the real deal? How would we know? How could we evaluate? And what Luke's going to do is he's going to give us four evidences for Jesus being the real deal. He wants his original audience, this, this guy named Theophilus, who he wrote this book to, he wants him to have steel in his spine, certainty. You can trust Jesus. He's not some Ponzi scheme guy. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to Luke 3 in an effort to try to communicate what Luke is doing for his original audience. I want us to leave here with steel in our spine, knowing Jesus is the real deal. Jump in with me in verses 21 and 22. We see the first evidence that Luke is giving us that Jesus has the right references Keep in mind context here. Matt did a great job last week preaching the passage of John the Baptist who, who stepped on the scene and was just hammering the crowds with these haymakers, yelling and hollering is my sense, letting them know, y'all think you are true sons of Abraham? You're not. But in contrast to the harsh words that John the Baptist gave, we have the true son of Abraham on the scene. 
Look in the text. You see Jesus getting baptized. And as he's being baptized, the heavens are rended open, ripped open, tore open. And, and something like a dove, not a dove, but something like a dove, the Spirit descends on Jesus. And then the Father, God the Father, audibly speaks, this is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. In contrast to what the crowds were being told, blasted on, Jesus gets the highest of compliments. Jesus, Luke is showing us, very quickly, but very powerfully, he has the right references. Like if you went to Bernie Madoff in his heyday and said, thinking about investing my money with you, who should I call to see if this is legitimate. I guess he could have had Kevin Bacon on his list. And had we been there by John the Baptist preaching, thinking to ourselves, I'm thinking about following you, Jesus. I wondered, could you provide me a list of references to decide whether I want to follow you or not? Would the Holy Spirit be sufficient for you? How about God the Father? Feel free to contact them. We'll get this. Not only does Jesus have the right references in, with the Spirit and the Father, turns out Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. You might want to write this down in your little notes. You can look later at it. Isaiah 64, 1. 700 years before Jesus is alive, Isaiah 64, 1 predicts that there is coming a day when the Christ is on the scene, when the Messiah is there, the Messianic age. Isaiah 64, 1 says, the heavens will open and God will descend on Messiah. So is Jesus the real deal? Luke's saying, the Father says so. God the Father says so. God the Spirit's descending on him. And he's fulfilling Isaiah 64.1. But, but maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, 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 pastor. But I'm... I'm critical of the Bible. You're basically just using the Bible to prove that the Bible's true. That's circular reasoning. And I actually don't buy that. To which I'd say, okay. But stick with us because this isn't the only evidence Luke is giving us. It's just the first. For the rest of us, know this. Is Jesus the real deal? Well, he has the right references. Proof number two from verses 23 to 38. Jesus has the right pedigree. Look with me there. 3, 23 to 38, and you find that we've got a big list of names. Whenever I'm reading through the Bible and I come to a list like this, I like to practice my speed reading. <laughs> Done. How was your Bible reading today? Fast. It was just names. But, but having preached through Genesis, those of you who are with us as we preach through the book of Genesis, there's a lot of list of names there. And, and having to do the work in those names and having to do the work here, I'm realizing these list of names are powerful. Uh, genealogies aren't just flyover country. They actually matter. And what Luke's doing here with this list of names that is hard to pronounce, what he's doing is he's connecting Jesus back to King David and back to Father Abraham but then all the way back to Adam, which look in the text, look how Adam is described. 
Adam is a son of, do you see who he's a son of? God. We have two sons of God in our text. Remember just now in the baptism? Jesus, he was called the beloved son. But now we've got Adam, who's a son of God. And here in a minute, Satan is going to come at Jesus and say, if you're the son of God, which shows us something of what Luke is doing. He wants us to know who the true son of God is. But in this section, what we're seeing then is Luke giving us certainty. Jesus has the right pedigree. He's not some Bernie Madoff hack. Look, he's not only got the right references, but now look at the family tree. He's legitimate. That's Luke's point. But maybe you're a critic and you go, yeah, but wait a minute. I thought you all believed in the virgin birth. I mean... It was just a couple weeks ago you were here and you're, virgin birth, virgin birth. I thought that was really important. So why the genealogical record if it's son of God, son of Mary? Well, you're right, but Luke gets it too. Look at verse 23. He actually gives a nod to the virgin birth. Do you see it there in the text? My point is Jesus' genealogical record is not undermined is not undermining the virgin birth. Verse 23 shows us Luke saying, as was supposed. So both are true. And for the original reader, Theophilus, the virgin birth is legitimate, as is Jesus' pedigree. Jesus truly is the real deal because he's connected to King David, he's connected to Abraham, he's connected to Adam. But sidebar with me real quick because some of you in college, some of you getting ready to go to college, you're going to be, you may face a harsh critic, some professor who thinks they're all sharp and fantastic in their argument, who says to you, the Bible actually is illegitimate because this genealogical record here is different than Matthew's genealogical record. And in case you didn't know, that's true. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, there are different people in the family tree than in Luke 3. And the way the argument has been lobbed at me, and it, and it, it was, dis, it was dis, disturbing to me when I first heard this, because it was basically like, well, look, if you can't even get the family tree right, then the Bible has a contradiction and it can't be trusted. But there's an answer to this. As well as any of these so-called, the Bible has a contradiction, let me prove you how it's wrong. And, and the answer is this. I, I want you to get this, especially college students, high school students. The most important rule when you're reading your Bible is author's intent. Author's intent. That's what you always have to ask. What is the author intending to say? And if you grant author's intent, if you make that the golden rule of reading, I'm going to read Luke the way he wants to be read, and I'm going to read Matthew the way he wants to be read, what you would discover is Luke, in his genealogical record, is trying to do something very different than Matthew. And in fact, the snarky, cheeky college professor who's attacking is actually trying to do something that's altogether different than both of those. See, many of us approach a genealogical record and we have the expectation it will be exhaustive. That's baked into our approach to a genealogical record. But Luke is not trying to be exhaustive and neither is Matthew. And if you get to the heart of the author's intention, it resolves all apparent contradictions. See, see, Matthew actually uses these 14s 
It's numerology, which I know that sounds fancy, but that's what Matthew does. He says, from Abraham to David is 14. From David to Babylon is 14. From Babylon to Christ is 14. It's not actually exhaustively 14. That's Matthew's way of saying, Jesus really is the one you Jews have been waiting for. And Luke's doing something different, which is altogether different than what we do when we have Ancestry.com. Here's my point, sidebar over. There is no contradiction when you understand author's intent and the genealogical record. But, but to the point at hand, Luke wants us to see Jesus really has the right pedigree. And because he's the son of Adam, anybody else who is a son of Adam can be saved too. He has the right references. He has the right pedigree. Proof number three, Jesus has the right track record. This brings us to four, chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Here Jesus is going into the wilderness He's fasting for 40 days. And if we had that Old Testament Geiger counter that we've talked about before, this pretend machine I wish somebody would invent that when we're reading Luke, all of a sudden it would start beeping when Luke is picking up on an Old Testament theme. It would be going bananas at this section. See, for those of you familiar with your Bibles, do you know from the Old Testament of a time when somebody fasted 40 days and was in the wilderness? Does Jesus' experience here in the wilderness ring a bell for any of you when you realize there, you, there was a place in the Old Testament where God's people were not trusting him for food like Jesus had to face in chapter 4, 3, and 4? Is there any place in the Old Testament where God's people were tempted to worship false gods instead of the true God like Jesus is tempted there in chapter 4, verses 5 to 8? Are there any bells ringing for you when you think about God's people being told, you shall not put God to a test? See, what Luke's doing in this section is he's wanting us to connect the dots to Old Testament Israel. After Egypt, Old Testament Israel is in the wilderness. Moses does a 40-day fast. In fact, they're in the wilderness wandering before they get to the promised land for 40 years. And every one of these temptations the Israelites face, and they fail. And what Luke is wanting to show Theophilus and anybody who will read with the Old Testament light in view, he's wanting to show them Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus is the real deal. He faces temptations just like God's people did, but unlike Adam and unlike Moses and unlike all the Israelites, Jesus is perfectly righteous through it all. That's good news. And that should have us thinking, man, Jesus really is different than any other Old Testament character we've ever seen. Jesus has the right track record. And then Perfectly navigating all these temptations, do you notice that Jesus actually quotes scripture at Satan? Turns out, all three quotations are between Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Leading some to wonder if that wasn't where he was having his quiet time that morning. And Deuteronomy 6 to 8, fulfillment, answering Satan's temptations... For those wanting to dig in more to this connection, a good study Bible will give you cross-references 
or you can write down to look at later, um, Exodus chapter 16 and 17, Numbers 11 and 20. In fact, Psalm 106 has 48 verses in it, but it gives explicit references to what Jesus is fulfilling here. It is mind-blowing that Jesus didn't disobey. He would take no shortcut. He is the real deal. And don't, don't miss that while these three temptations really did occur, would you look in verse 13? These three temptations that link him to Old Testament Israel did occur, but Jesus also endured from the devil every temptation. Now get that a swirling in your brain, because some of you may be like, I actually don't struggle with being tempted to turn rocks into bread. It turns out I can't do it anyway, so that's not big on the sin list, Pastor. <laughs> yeah, Luke's trying to do something there, but for anybody who's wondering, does Jesus know what it's like with the sin and temptation I face? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he knows. Oh, he knows, not just because he's God and he knows everything. He knows because he, he faced it. He faced everything we face. He faced everything he faced, and he never caved. Like, like, I mean, real talk, you face temptation, and sometimes the temptation gets greater and greater, and then you just think, fine, I'm just going to give in. Not Jesus. It kept ratcheting up, and he kept saying no. Oh, and by the, by the way... Ricky was reminding me, Jesus has all power. See, because some of us get tempted to do things, but we don't actually have the power to make any of it happen. Man, it'd be nice to steal 50 billion, but we can't. Jesus had the power to do anything he wanted. He could have given himself freedom to anything. And Jesus wasn't in his strongest state of mind. He was on day 40 of a 40-day fast. Doctors tell me that that after 40 days, you're going to starve to death. He's at his weakest. And his Satan is throwing these haymakers at Jesus, trying to get him to crumble. Jesus, stand strong. Hallelujah. We, we got a man on the scene who is unlike anybody else we've ever seen. Sinlessly perfect. Do you believe it? Or are you wondering still if Jesus is pulling some Ponzi scheme? Friends, there is a deceiver in our text, but it is not Luke and it is not Jesus. It is Satan. It's trying to scam you. Don't you see the father affirming Jesus? Don't you see the genealogical record confirming Jesus? And in the face of temptation, Jesus is standing firm. One more. Look at verses 14 and 15 that ends our text. Jesus has the right street credit. Verse 14, Jesus comes out of this temptation moment and he is in power in the synagogues, teaching. And news is traveling quickly, which, which I suppose if your name's Jesus and you've got Holy Spirit power, people recognize, man, this guy is legit. And, and it ends with Jesus being glorified by all. Do you see that there at the end of verse 15? That's how this preaching section ends. Jesus is being glorified by all, which I think is interesting, that our, that our preaching passage begins with the Father glorifying Jesus, 
in front of everybody, this is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased. And then in the temptation section, you've got Satan trying to get glory from Jesus. But Jesus, who's the real deal, he ends up getting glory from all who hear of him. Truly, the people are recognizing and worshiping the Son of God for who he is. Which brings us to the end of our text this morning. Luke wanting us to get. Jesus is the real deal. You can believe it. You can anchor in it. Having then walked through the text, it brings us then to the primary application. The most important application Luke wants us to take from this text is answering the question, is Jesus the real deal? For all then who are here, this is a question you have to deal with, and this is what Luke wants us to do business with first. Do you believe Jesus is the real deal? Like you might have showed up this morning doing somebody a favor, fine, I'll go to worship service. Or, or maybe you're a kid, and mom and dad didn't give you a choice. As long as you live in my house, you're going to church, which I think is good of you, mom and dad, don't stop. But maybe you're here, and if you're intellectually honest, you're trying to figure out, do I believe this? Is there some Ponzi scheme going on? And the question for you is to try to, you need to land. You need to land this question, and it's, it's crucial. Is Jesus the real deal? And, and, and if you're here, and you're, you're a kid, or you're a cynic, and you're just skeptical about it all, what's in it for you, Pastor. Where's all the money go? Whatever your questions are, what you've got to do business with is, is Jesus the real deal? But please don't tell me that you would believe Jesus is the real deal if God would just say it out loud. Don't, don't tell me that, that, you know, Pastor, I would just really believe it. If God the Father would say some words out loud, then I would believe Jesus is the real deal because that's what happens in the text. He already did that. I mean, so if that's all you need, check the box. And, and what I'm really asking is this, what do you need? And I'm being honest. And I want you to consider it for yourself. What is it that you need to get over the hump and believe Jesus is the real deal? Do you need God the Father to speak out loud? Because he did it. Do you need somebody to prove that he's got the right family? He did it. It's there. He's got the right, he's got the right references. He's got the right pedigree. Are you, waiting, are you waiting to learn that Jesus actually is different than you and different than me in that he will face temptation and, and he will emerge victorious? Are you waiting for somebody to prove to you that he doesn't make the mistakes you do? Jesus had no regrets. He went on the cross thinking, shoulda, coulda, woulda. He's on the cross saying, man, it is finished. He did it. Hebrews 12, 2. He then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God after ascending because he did it all. Are you waiting on somebody to prove to you that he's, he's actually sinlessly perfect because that's what our text is saying? Oh, and don't tell me you're waiting on somebody just to... You're waiting on some people to confirm, yeah, yeah, we believe Jesus. Man, if more people around me would just believe Jesus truly is the real deal, I'd believe it too because you've got that in the text and you've got that from me this morning. I mean, if you're here and you're just waiting on somebody to try to convince you based on 
real life experience, I'm here to tell you, it's true. You talk to any of us. He's the real deal. What do you need to get over the hump? What do you need to get over the hump? Maybe you're here and you're actually going, yeah, actually, pastor, I'm fine granting that Jesus is God, but he's just one way to God. I actually think this is more in line with our cultural moment of pluralism. My guess is if you're skeptical, it's not that Jesus can't be one of the gods, it's just he's one of many. He's not exclusive. And and if that's you, if you're here going, yeah, man, I showed up at church because I think Jesus is one way up the mountain. Buddha's one way, Hira Krishna's one way, Muhammad's one way, there's all these world religions, they're all going up the same mountain, and Jesus is just the way we go. If that's what you're thinking, you're doing terrible damage to what Luke is saying. In fact, you are doing to Luke's gospel what Bernie Madoff did to people's money. It's a total deception. Because if you're going to read Luke on his terms, if you're going to allow Luke to communicate his message, Luke isn't saying he's one of many sons of God getting approval. He's the only. Jesus isn't one of many of a litany of the sons of God. He is the son of God. He is the only begotten son of God, the scripture tells us. So if you're here and you're wanting Jesus to be just one of many, let me tell you, you are doing some damage to the Bible and you are trying to get the Bible to say something it does not say. And that's against the rules. That's not how you read the Bible. Well, let me put it like that. If that is, let me put it like this. If that is how you read the Bible, well, then you can make the Bible say whatever you want. But that's not how Christians read the Bible. We want God to say what he wants to say, not what we want him to say. Others have put it better than me. If you're reading the Bible on its terms, Jesus is either the Lord, he is a liar, or he's a lunatic. Either he, he really is who he says he is, or he told us he is, but he knows he's lying which is kind of a head-scratcher, because why would you die on a cross? That's a tough one. Or he actually thinks he's the son of God, but he's got bananas for brains, and the poor guy's just out to lunch. But don't tell me, don't tell me he's a fourth option. He is kind of God and just kind of a good guy and kind of just one of many ways, because the Bible doesn't allow it. He is who he says he is. He lied to us, or he's bananas. Those are your options. For everyone here, you got to decide who is Jesus. That's a question that's going to get asked to you one day. On the other side of death, you're going to be asked, who is Jesus? Is he the real deal or not? For anyone who believes it, that Jesus is the real deal, you're not going to end up like Kevin Bacon. You're going to be grateful for your investment. Well, that's the primary application for all of us. We must answer the question, is Jesus the real deal? For those who would say, Pastor, I'm in. I believe Jesus is the real deal. Having dealt with the primary application, let's move to another application we can get in this text. Love for you to write this down. If you believe Jesus is the real deal, then God is pleased with you. God is pleased with you. Let me connect the dots. 
Jesus Christ, at his baptism, gets a verbal reference from God the Father who says, you are my son, in you I am pleased. And if you're here and you believe Jesus is the real deal, the Bible tells us that this affirmation from the Father is for you and I as well. God is pleased with you if you're in Christ, which for many of us creates quite a dissonance. But wait, yeah, I believe Jesus is the real deal, Pastor, but I've got all these awful things I've done. Not just far in my past, Pastor, like recently. I mean, I've been a Christian for fill in the blank how many months or years, and sure, I had all this garbage before I became a Christian, but I still got garbage and sin since I've been a Christian. How can God be pleased with me? My sense is he's looking at me and he's kind of annoyed with me. Like, oh, you again? When are you going to clean your act up? But the Bible teaches this powerful doctrine truth called imputation. Would you say imputation? One, two, three. Imputation. Imputation means Jesus' perfectness. What he did in the wilderness, all the ways he was righteous, is placed on you, imputed to you, so that if you walk in the room with God the Father, so to speak, and he smelled, he'd say, oh, that smells like Jesus. If the Father saw you from a distance, as it were, he would go, oh, that looks like Jesus. And as you got closer, because of imputation, when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus' righteousness, his perfectness. He's pleased with you. I love the way Spurgeon says it. All the love and the acceptance which perfect obedience could have obtained of God belong to you because Christ was perfectly obedient on your behalf. I mean, just pretend that you actually lived perfect. Your conscience was clear. Every time you faced temptation, you obeyed. And then you went up to heaven. And the Father looked at you and he went, well done. You were sinlessly perfect. How good would that feel? I'm telling you, that's the truth right now because of Christ. Oh, but pastor, but, but my, my sin. What about all that junk? Well, here's the beauty. It's not just one imputation. It's double imputation. Would you say double imputation? One, two, three. Double imputation. Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. And this is so powerful. It's not just that you get Christ's righteousness. He takes your sin. He took all your sin. All the stuff you did. All the stuff you're going to do today, all the stuff you're going to do for the next decade, he's already died on the cross for that. He dealt with it. There's not like a little dirt stain on Christ's robes of righteousness that you're carrying, and God's like, would you just get a little shouted out and clean that little spot up a sin? It's been dealt with. Double imputation. The Lord is pleased with you. Application two, or excuse me, application three. Because you believe Jesus is the real deal, because you believe that, because he's pleased with you, live holy by rejecting temptation and sin. Just as we saw Jesus endure every temptation and emerge victoriously, you can do it too. Some of you in here, you believe Jesus is the real deal, but you keep caving to sin. You keep giving into sin. You, you need to remember 
The same Holy Spirit power that enabled Jesus Christ to successfully make it through the wilderness is in you. You are not powerless. I mean, you have got the Spirit of God in you who will give you what you need to live holy lives. In fact, the New Testament calls us to live holy and honorable to the Lord. Now, don't get me twisted. I am not saying that if you obey, God will save you. No, no, no. Justification only is through Jesus Christ. That's what we talked about when he's pleased. He's already pleased with us. Because he's already pleased with us, we're saved. What I'm saying is because we're saved, the New Testament is teaching, because you're saved, live holy. Obey. Whatever you're doing that you know that is sinful and wrong, repent of it, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, obey the Lord. You can do it. Christ desires it of you, and he's given you the Holy Spirit to be empowered. Glorify God by living obedient and righteous before him. Reject temptation and sin. Final application here. Follow Jesus' example of scripture memorization. Follow Jesus' example of scripture memorization. If you believe Jesus is the real deal, if you believe he is pleased with you, if you are committed to living a holy and obedient life, the evil one is going to come after you. Some of you know this. The evil one hates us. Satan and his demons hate you if you're in Christ. They hate your family. Parents, they hate your kids. They hate this church. They hate the Bible. The enemy hates preaching. He hates it when we sing. He hates it when we gather together. He hates it when we pray for one another. He hates it. And he is thousands of years older than us. And he is far more powerful than any of us. And when he comes for you, what are you going to battle him with? Do you notice in our text, Jesus doesn't just say to the enemy, come at me, bro. Jesus quotes scripture. That's his offensive weapon. And when you're getting tempted, what's your weapon? I wonder if some of the time we're getting pinned by the evil one because we ain't got no weapon. And we got the sword of the spirit right here we can battle the enemy with. Hide God's word in your heart. Jesus' example of scripture memorization in real talk, for about the last year, I have been struggling with fear and anxiety like I've never felt in my life. For 41 years, people would say, fear and anxiety is a real issue. And I would say, okay, I believe you, but I never felt how crippling it is. When that stuff starts happening in your head, and it's the middle of the night and you can't sleep. And you didn't sleep last night and it feels like you're not going to sleep this night. And 
and the enemy's just poning you, what are you going to do? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has been so sweet to me. I've been going to biblical counseling. Pastor Marty's helped me with this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Man, I got that in my brain now. See, he told me to do that and it's been helpful. Or Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's real life. And if you're struggling with fear and anxiety, those are two places you can go. Or maybe you're like me and you're like, no, man, that's not really, maybe you were like me. You're like, yeah, I, I, that's not my, my issue, but yours is temptation, maybe sexual purity. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. No temptation is greater than you. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's truth. Or maybe you need Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning, somehow, all these super saints, all these people, Luke, Theophilus, Abraham, David, all the ballers, somehow they're all up in some big old stadium. All the witnesses are surrounding us. Therefore, since you're surrounded by so great witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is power in Hebrews 12. Or maybe your thing is, no man, it's not your anxiety. And, and pastor, it's not temp, it's not temptation stuff like you're describing. Maybe your issue is you really don't believe that you are the beloved child of God. You struggle with approval. And, and, and you struggle with approval for others, and you struggle to believe that God is approving you. It's technical. I've been there, but Romans 3.21 through 26 will give you hope. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. It's too technical. All right, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you facing condemnation? There's hope there. Or maybe you're thinking, hey man, I just need some kind of one-size-fits-all deal. Well, Psalm 23 would be that for you. If you're only going to memorize one thing, Psalm 23 will take you all the way to the grave. My family and I, think, I think my whole family has it memorized. It's gold. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, what a gift to have God's word hidden in your heart. It is how we fight the enemy. Believe Jesus is the real deal. Believe you're an approved child of God. Resist sin and temptation. Live holy and memorize scripture. May God give us grace to do so. Please pray with me. Father, I pray through the power of your spirit, you would drill this truth deep into our hearts. And for the ways that we experience real problems, you would give us real biblical answers. Give us peace, comfort, grace. Spirit, for those who don't know you, save even now. For those who do, give confidence and embolden. In Christ's name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.